0: This morning's passage is from the book of John, chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you,
1: Um, For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Jonah Brenner, the student ministry director. For those of you who do know me, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Jokes aside, uh, I'm Jonah. I am privileged to get to work on staff here at Trinity. Uh, Really thankful to be able to walk with your students and help make a bit more sense of the Bible, at least I hope, uh, and where that fits into our lives. Um, I'm originally from, well, I guess, my mother's womb. But apart from that, I'm originally from uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, grew up there, um, and I'm currently a graduate student over at Westminster Seminary, California. Yet, more than being a student, I care about uh, being someone who gets to proclaim God's Word and who gets to teach that and share that with you all. Uh, so it's my great joy to get to do that with you all this morning. Um, as we do that, Man, uh, that's a big passage. That's a lot that we're looking at today, and I'm excited to break into that with you all this morning. Um, As we do that, I want to kind of frame some of John 3 in light of, well, maybe not entirely in light of Undercover Boss, but there's a little bit of it, uh, because right here we see Jesus having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. And if you've been around the church long enough, you have an idea of what a Pharisee is and maybe even a sour opinion of what they are. Uh, And yet my hope is that as we look and see just who Nicodemus is and the kinds of questions he's asking, maybe we couch some of our expectation about what a Pharisee is. For those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the Pharisee, a Pharisee was a uh, very influential religious person Um, in Judaism. It was kind of a sect where people were leaders and rulers and guides of the Old Testament law, and they really cared about how to make that known and how to live by it well. And that's something that, in a lot of ways, they would go too far. But really, they were a biblically-minded people. And that's something I think we have in common, right? And maybe you don't, but maybe you should, to be a biblically-minded person and to ask the question, what does it look like to take what God has said to us in his word and work that out in my life in a way that makes sense? So, then in today's passage, what we're greeted with Uh, is not just any random conversation, but it's someone who's a pretty excellent member of the religious industry, if one wants to call it that. Having a conversation with someone he doesn't even know is really his boss. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's come down in the flesh. So, we're gonna be looking at that a bit today. Uh, Investigating the religious industry by looking at three different things. We're gonna be looking at kingdom entrance, And how kingdom entrance doesn't come from religious excellence. We're going to be looking at um, how the kingdom of God is not bound by our human imagination. And we're also going to be looking about how Jesus is unique in his role as being one who reveals the coming kingdom. Only he gets to do it. So, as we get going, (laughs) I want to remind that Nicodemus, as a man of religious importance, it matters a lot that he's asking questions, that he gets to come to Jesus and ask questions, that Jesus in his ministry and what he's doing in seeking the downtrodden and the outcast and the widow and the person that everyone ignores, he still comes to the person who's so close to the Bible that they managed to miss the whole point. So we're going to have a look at that this morning. First things first, kingdom entrance doesn't come from religious excellence. And that's what I think we see at play here in this. If you look at John 3, 1 through 2, you see that Nicodemus comes, and he's not just a Pharisee, but he is listed as a ruler as well. Why? That matters because in being listed as both, it shows that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. What's that? That's not just a funny word, and no, it's not a spice for your kitchen cabinet. The Sanhedrin was a collection of religious leaders and teachers, priests, that gathered to settle legal decisions when they had social ramifications, when they had political ramifications, when they had religious ramifications. That's what they were concerned with. So you had this whole council of people that were biblically minded that wanted to say, hey, how do we make life make more sense in light of the Bible. Let's do that. That's not too far off from what we might expect. So Nicodemus comes as a representative in a conversation with Jesus, as a bit of a ruler, someone with status and authority. He comes to an up-and-coming religious leader who's a carpenter and is asking him questions. And I think at minimum, that's a little bit quaint, at the bare minimum, Jesus, Nicodemus is a highly influential man in the world of the Jews. He is a key professional religious person. He knows the ins and outs of the Old Testament likely better than you or I ever will. And he's still coming to Jesus to ask him questions. And you look at that, you see he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, not from 7-Eleven not from anywhere else, but from God himself. And this council sees it, and they know it. They've heard of the signs that Jesus has been doing at this point. They know that he's up to something, and they have an idea of who Jesus is, but they're not 100% certain what that is, and they're trying to find out more. So Nicodemus comes. I think there's another really important thing in him calling Jesus, rabbi. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign that he's not just a little, tiny, insignificant person. Nicodemus acknowledges that Jesus has something worth listening to, and he sees that. I think that's remarkable that this ruler of the Jews looks to Jesus and says, you know something I don't, and I need to ask questions. Let's find out. Nicodemus has some kind of awareness of the signs that Jesus has been doing. Uh, Perhaps the wedding at Cana that happens just a passage earlier where Jesus gives the first sign that reveals his glory, where he turns water into wine and begins his earthly ministry with a bit of a party and a celebration. Nicodemus likely heard of that, and he likely also heard of Jesus cleaning out the temple that shows up in John 2 and the signs that he does afterwards. So he knows that Jesus is up to something. But they're trying to figure out, well, what is that exactly? What's the goal? What's Jesus up to? So he comes by night. And I think that we could maybe hear that when Nicodemus comes at night, maybe this is just him coming after a long work day when it's convenient for him. But I don't think that detail should slip past us. Any mention of light and darkness in John is really important. Why? Well, because there's a thematic lens that kicks off in John's prologue. John's prologue is a bit of a, a lens and a framework that helps you see themes all throughout John's gospel. 1 through 18 bring in a bunch of themes that make you go, huh, I, I need to think about that a second time. I don't need to pay closer attention. If you mentally queue up John's prologue, you'll find darkness is an interpretive theme If you look to John 1, 5, and then also 11, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. What's at play here? In John, when someone comes by dark, in dark, or does something in darkness, it shows that there's someone who doesn't get Jesus who doesn't understand what's going on, who wants to hide from the light of the world that's come down to make known the kingdom of God. So when Nicodemus comes at night, it's John in his expert authorial intent saying, this guy and what he's doing and how he's coming, he might not be someone that really understands Jesus, at least not yet. Nicodemus, more than any other person, he should have understood what Jesus was here to do and what he was coming to do. He was someone so studied and so acquainted with the truth of God's word, and yet he doesn't get it. He comes at night, not just because it's convenient for his schedule and his planner, but because he's in darkness He's grasping around for some understanding of what it means to get the truth of God. I think we see this again later in John 3, 9, and 10, when Nicodemus asks Jesus, after hearing a bit about the explanation that Jesus gives of the Spirit, he's still asking, Jesus, how can this be? What's going on? How does any of this happen? And Jesus answers him and responds and kicks back a little bit and says, you're the teacher of Israel? And you don't get this, because you should. Why? Because Jesus, through God, throughout the entire Old Testament, has been in the business of making God's plan known. And it's not something that he's just doing recently. This is something that's been shown throughout all the Old Testament. And I think we're gonna see that more later. But I, I wanna sit on this for a second. Because in contrast to the status that one might expect from his position of being the religious leader, of being someone of religious excellence, because Pharisees are not lightly trained, let me tell you that, Nicodemus is in a bit of trouble because he doesn't get it. He doesn't get and understand things that should be expected for his position. Nicodemus, the biblically-minded religious professional, is walking in darkness and stumbling without vision. He's corrected by a carpenter minister who's on the up-and-coming, and and he's grasping and hoping to see something about the kingdom of God. Why does this matter? It shows that you can be the most biblically-studied person and still miss the kingdom of God. It shows that Kingdom entrance doesn't come by religious excellence, it has to come by something else. So it begs the question, if it's not by just knowing things really, really, really well, how do you get kingdom entrance? We're gonna see a bit of that because we're gonna go to point two, which is that there's something about God's heavenly kingdom that Jesus makes known that's beyond anybody's human imagination. There's an earthly element, there's a heavenly element, and you're not going to get it unless something comes down from heaven to make it known. If we go to John 3, 3, and 4, we see that uh, Jesus answers Nicodemus' first opening question, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And I think already we can kind of see that Nicodemus is thinking at a bit of a what we might expect, like an earthly expectation. You're talking about birth. You're talking about being born again. Like, I mean, I was born once. Like, I don't know how to do that a second time. What's that look like? He's curious. He still wants to know. He's trying to take Jesus at his word, and that really matters. And yet, what matters also is that Jesus answers him crossways. And I think this is important. It happens at times. If you ever read read through other gospel encounters with Jesus and other Pharisees or Jesus and just other people, there's going to be these occasions where it's like people are coming at Jesus this way, and instead of answering them right head on, it's like Jesus is cutting across their intent. It's like he's not answering their questions squarely. He's not paying attention to what they're saying. No, he is. He's just making something known that they're not aware of. And we see that a bit here. Nicodemus has a bit of a question of, well, um, we know that you're from God, and we know that you're doing these signs, so what's, uh, what's going on there? And it's as if Jesus answers out of left field, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is making visible the kingdom of God. Truly, truly is, if you don't know, it's not just repetition for the sake of repetition. Uh, it's a biblical formula that when it's used, it shows that there's some kind of special revealing. There's a divine revelation. So when someone says, truly, truly, I say to you, what they're bringing forward to everyone's attention is a truth of God, a truth about God, a truth about what God's doing, about his kingdom that's coming. And so when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. One, this kind of kicks us back a little bit to Nicodemus walking in darkness, makes you wonder, does Nicodemus know what it means to be born again? Yet, it's not just that. There's a heavy-duty truth that's about to be laid out by God in Jesus. There is a way into the kingdom to see it, its birth from above. The word born again, you know, we see it up here. Uh, We see that in uh, verse 3, it says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. The word there has a couple fun senses. One of them, is again, congratulations, I just said the same thing that I just said. However, the other one means from above. And so when Nicodemus is hearing what Jesus says, when he's hearing those original words that he speaks, Nicodemus imagines Jesus talking about being born again. And in an element, he is. But what Jesus is really saying is that unless you're born from above and on high, you can't see the kingdom that Jesus is making known. There's a heavenly origin to God's kingdom. It's not of this world. There's more than a slight part of what Jesus is doing that's beyond human imagination. There's a birth and a hope that can't fit into Nicodemus' brain. His best guess doesn't make sense. And why does that matter? Because it's a reminder that being a part of what Jesus is doing isn't one or bot. By human insight, God's heavenly kingdom is brought about by God bringing it, not you. You can't see or know what Jesus is really doing unless you've been born from on high, born from the Spirit. It's a bit of another pushback on Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus says, "We know." In verse two, we know that your teacher come from God, and it's as if Jesus comes in and says, "You don't know." You can't know. You can't see or know what I'm doing unless I am with you by the power of my spirit, unless I've been brought about in you and raised you up and been born in you to bring new life. We see that Jesus continues in his explanation of bringing forth a heavenly kingdom to our understanding when he continues in 3, 5 through 8. And he says that unless you're born of water and spirit, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. And there's a bit of a progression. There's an escalation. It's not just seeing in order to get into the kingdom. It's that unless you're born of the Spirit, you don't enter the kingdom. You go from being born again to see the kingdom to born of the Spirit to enter. And it's Jesus returning and doubling down and making more clear what he said previously. And he continues to explain. Did you notice the, exclama- the escalation? You've got to be born from above to see the kingdom and born by water and spirit to enter it. But let's talk about kingdom of God real quick. Because kingdom of God is a concept that shows up a lot throughout the New Testament. Uh, it shows up a lot in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in Acts. And it's only mentioned twice in the whole Gospel of John. And guess what? We just read it. It only shows up two times, the phrase, kingdom of God. Because when John talks about kingdom of God, he really means to say eternal life. For him, kingdom of God here is an introductory statement to cue up and say, yeah, kingdom of God, what does it really mean for us? It means life and life eternal. It means a life made possible by the Spirit. And that's what he continues to make known here, this passage serves as the transition for the theme of kingdom of God to eternal life. How? Well, when you look at eight, you see unless something is born of the Spirit, and you see in six, sorry, not uh, you see in six that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that's what's born of the Spirit is Spirit. Why does that matter? There's a like kind thing, sure. One's like one thing. The other's like the other thing. I don't want to get too overly um, spiritualistic. I know, that's funny because we're talking about spirit stuff. Uh, But throughout church history, maybe you've been aware that some people kind of have a weird relationship with flesh and spirit, and they kind of like overly make one bad or overly elevate another. Um, what's at play here, what they're talking about here, what Jesus is saying here is that the spiritual birth that he's making known matters for kingdom entrance because spirit doesn't die like flesh does. That what's, what's born of flesh is flesh, and it dies. We get old. Knees hurt, and I'm 23, and my knees still hurt. And yet when you're born of the Spirit, there's a life available to you that doesn't decay. And that's what Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus. It's not just about earthly birth. It's not about entering a womb a second time at all. It's about being born by the power of the Spirit that comes down from on high. So, Spirit and wind. Because there's a lot of times in which when we talk about the Holy Spirit, It's analogous to wind. Why? Well, Jesus talks about that here. He says, you don't see where it comes from. You don't see where it goes. You don't really see its origin, but you know its effects. You know its power. You know that it's doing something. You know that it's moving. You know it's up to something, and you can't control it. We can do our darndest to build wind turbines and harvest the wind in some capacity, but we're not really in charge of the wind now, are we? We're still a bit of a servant to it, and it still kind of pushes us around. And similarly, there's something about the way that the Spirit moves that isn't captivated by what you and I do as humans. It is what God is doing in us and through us. Heavenly birth doesn't come from earthly manipulation. And becoming a child of God, it's something that God does, not you. You don't just adopt yourself. Something God does by coming to his people and showing them who he is. Again, think back to John's prologue with me. In John 1, 12 to 13, we again get this kind of interpretive framework where John cues up and says, all who receive him, who believed in his name, who gave, he gave the right to be children of God. Notice how. Not born of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A second birth, kingdom entrance into God's kingdom, doesn't come by you or I being religiously excellent, and it doesn't come by us trying to think about God in only earthly terms. We don't imagine our way into the kingdom. That same kingdom, the eternal life that Jesus talks about with Nicodemus, that heavenly kingdom is one you can't earn. Nicodemus didn't get into the kingdom by being excellent at religion, and I can go ahead and shortcut you and tell you you won't either. No matter what you do, you can't get heaven in an earthly way not by being smart enough, not by being strong enough, not by being quick enough, not by any of it. It's not on your terms. And I want to ask a question, how does that make you feel? (laughs) Because if I'm honest, it makes me angry sometimes. It makes me sad. Because there's a little liar in my heart that thinks that I get to earn God's favor, that I get to earn heaven. And I don't. And you don't. And that's what's so humbling about this, is that entering God's kingdom, it doesn't come from you or I being an extra goody two-shoes. It has to come from God. I don't know, perhaps you're different, maybe you just know that you're not going to, but I always find myself trying to earn God's favor a little bit extra and always wanting to get in by my doing stuff, not by trusting what God has done for me. So, begs the question, how is the kingdom beyond earthly imagination? Well, because you can't conceive of what God is doing. It's something that he's making known that you'll never be able to fully grasp. Yet, if kingdom entrance isn't given by religious excellence, and if it's not given by us trying really hard or doing something of our own accord— If it's not bound to what you and I get, how do you get the kingdom? How do you enter the kingdom? How do you get eternal life? Well, if we're to believe the answers to the questions that Nicodemus is asking, if we're to believe and trust Jesus, then it comes in a really unique way. takes us to kind of our last point, which is that only Jesus reveals the coming kingdom. And something you need to see is Jesus' role as the Son of Man as one of authority and one that only he has. John 3, 11 and 13, or 11 through 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, again, there's kind of that, hey, something's going on here. We speak of what we know and we bear witness about things that we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I told you of earthly things and you don't trust me, how are you ever gonna believe when I tell you about heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven except the Son of Man, the one who descended from heaven. Note the scaling really quick. Let's zoom out. Throughout John 3, 1 through 15, Nicodemus has come with questions, and he's trying to figure out who Jesus is. He's trying to figure out what he's up to. And this starts out with Nicodemus as the man of high status with a lot of clout. And now what happens? As you work through John 3, as you work through this conversation, Nicodemus almost disappears to the margins. He decreases as Jesus increases. It's as if the religious professional knows that he just doesn't get this and he needs to step back and let Jesus say what Jesus is going to say and let Jesus make known what he's going to. Nicodemus realizes he lacks qualification. He's unfit to answer or keep up with this heavenly rabbi. And yet Nicodemus and company also don't really trust the witness that's been given to them. They don't trust what Jesus is saying. They don't trust necessarily the signs that he or his apostles have talked about that they're showing, the, cleaning of the, the cleansing of the temple, the water to wine. He doesn't really trust that Jesus is who he says he is by what he does. And Jesus kind of calls him on it. And Jesus reminds him, I've been honest about my earthly witness in the same way that I'm honest about my heavenly witness. And if you don't trust me about things that you and I have both seen and you know I'm telling the truth about, how are you going to trust me about things that I'm still telling the truth about but you can't know? There's a part where Jesus' authority and one of the ways that we trust him is that he shows us trustworthy in ways that you and I do understand. He shows us that he's someone worth Listening to because, in anything that you or I know, he gets it. If you and I, Jesus demonstrates and, and he recounts a proper understanding of our world. In the same voice of witness, he proclaims the hope of his coming kingdom. And if you and I don't ever believe what he says about what we know to be true, How are we ever going to believe what he says about what we hope to be true, that he brings light and life? He speaks about what we know is true, that we're weak, that we're sinners, that you and I are woefully unequipped to earn heaven by our religious effort. So how are we ever going to believe him if we don't even trust him there? The hope and mysteries of a heavenly eternal life or something that no man can ascend to heaven and go up there and just walk up a holy staircase and say, hey God, what's up? I earned all this stuff. I'm gonna bring it back down. That doesn't happen. No one can claim to teach or reveal the mysteries of God's kingdom. No one can just get eternal life except one person. And Jesus says it's him. It says it's the son of man who's come down. That's why he gets to talk about it, because he's the only one that ever has. He comes from heaven. He leaves his throne of glory. He brings forth light and life wherever he walks. And he comes to make known the glory of God's kingdom in a way that you and I can understand. There's something beautiful about what Jesus taps into when he talks about being the son of man. And that's an appeal to Proverbs 34. Who's ascended into heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who's established the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Son of man. Jesus Christ. That's his name. Jesus is the only one who could ever reveal or proclaim the coming of God's kingdom and the way that he does matters, which takes us to what I think is probably one of the strangest appeals that Jesus could have made in saying, this is who I am, is looking to a bronze snake wrapped around a stick, lifted up. John three fourteen and 15 says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's something critically important about the way that Jesus reveals God, God's kingdom and makes it known. He makes it available, a life that's previewed in numbers, 21, 7 through 9. Something that really should be in Nicodemus's wheelhouse. This is Old Testament stuff, and Jesus goes to it. And I don't think it's accidental that Jesus goes back to the Old Testament to say, yeah, this is who I am, and this is what I'm doing. Numbers 21, 7 through 9 is that there's Israelites walking around in the wilderness, and uh, as one might expect, they are just being chipper, uh, wood chipper, uh, in a bit of a cranky mood, and they aren't liking their conditions, and they're complaining. And serpents come about and strike them, and they freak out. And so the people come to Moses, and they say, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prays, and then he does something. He takes what's here called a fiery serpent. Some scholars think it's a bronze serpent or perhaps copper. There's an image of a serpent that's wrapped around a stick, and it's set up. And there's something interesting, I think, about the removal of their affliction comes from something that looks just like it. Why does that matter? Because you need to know that whenever something is hanged on a tree, it's considered cursed. You need to know that being hanged on a tree meant you were cursed. It meant to be hanged, you were the object of curse. You were not good. (laughs) I think it's important to know that the word raised here it doesn't mean just raise up. When Jesus talks about how the Son of Man must be raised up, just as the serpent was raised up, it means raised and it also means exalted. And here it means a little bit of both. Just as the serpent was raised up, so that as anyone looked to it, their affliction was taken from them, so the Son of Man was raised up so that anyone who looked to him and believed that he brought healing by his being cursed, their affliction was taken away. As you and I look to Christ on the cross and see God's king enthroned in shame, crowned a king on a cross, as we trust his testimony that he did that, not for any random reason, but for Us, we not only see the kingdom of God, we enter it. That's how kingdom entrance comes, by looking to the Son of Man raised up on a tree and saying, my King and my God. That's the thing Nicodemus didn't get, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that we have seen his glory full of grace and truth as of only from the Son of the Father. Jesus, the Son of Man, came down bearing grace and truth, and he became cursed on a tree, all to proclaim the eternal life and kingdom that God has on offer to Nicodemus, to you, to me. Don't you see that entrance into the kingdom isn't earned by religious effort? It's not garnered by a lifelong pharisaic study. It's granted and given by looking to the God-man who came down from heaven, who was cursed on a tree so that you didn't have to be. That's what's made known. That's what Jesus is pointing to. That's what Nicodemus misses. And yet, I, I don't want to leave Nicodemus just yet. Why? Because I think you and I might be a bit more like Nicodemus than we always think of. I think Pharisees get a bad rap a lot of the time, and for a good reason. (laughs) And yet, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm still like them in that I'm a biblically concerned person that wants to know more about what God's doing. Um, And that the finger that points to the Pharisee and says, they are horrible is the one that points to me and does the same thing. So what about Nicodemus? What about him? Um... I've gone back and forth on this. Uh, Nicodemus has an interesting story, and there's debate about what his story really means. He only shows up three times in the Bible, and it's in John. There's this instance where he has a conversation that he comes by dark. There's another instance where in John 7, a bunch of other people are kind of lambasting Jesus and saying, bro, come on, don't really listen to what he's saying. He's not really speaking true things, and Nicodemus kinda comes in, not full defense of Jesus, but not in critique that you might expect. Where's the last time that he shows up? Man, I think where he shows up the last time shows that he understands something that he didn't previously. Because the last time he shows up is to come and bury Jesus, and to anoint him for the grave. And he comes up with a bunch of myrrh and thinks to anoint Jesus And I think of in John 19, there's this movement, and it's spread out because it's the capstone of that whole gospel. When Jesus receives sour wine, and he bows his head, and he gives up his spirit, when he's later stabbed in the side, and blood and water comes out, when the person who sees this says, the witness is true. True. And he knows he's telling the truth so that you might believe, that you might believe what? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him doesn't perish, but they have eternal life. And I think Nicodemus, after this conversation, after this encounter with Jesus, where he sits down and asks questions about the kingdom, I think he has a better insight into who Jesus as the son of man is Because Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. I think Nicodemus was struck by his conversation with Jesus, and that's why he can't just leave him. Because he sees that the Son of Man was raised up as a cursed being on a tree, and that because of that you and I have life. He who earlier previously came at night comes in the day. There's still question and debate about if Nicodemus sees the kingdom through the Son of Man raised up. Maybe that's a question for you, but one thing I need you to know is that there's a heavenly glory that shatters our earthly expectation when we see the Son of Man raised on a cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you for this day, a day in which we can wake up and breathe and hear about your word and connect with a strange religious leader um, who we have some things in common with but not everything. And and I don't know how much we wanna have in common with him, Lord. Uh, But I pray that we would have one thing in common with you, and that would be your son, that we would know him, that we would cherish him, that we would look to him, that you would be merciful to us and show yourself who you are to us, Lord, because we believe that you have. Thank you, Lord. Give us an understanding of what that means for us as we go throughout our day. In your name I pray, amen.